This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And uh, today I have the great pleasure of uh, speaking with Ali um, Sivanovic, um, who is the Director of Innovative Surgical Technology in the Gynecology Service in the Department of uh, Surgery. And uh, we're going to be speaking about the topic of uh, HIPEX. So certainly uh, we anticipate a, a very lively uh, discussion. Ali, welcome. Thank you. Um, Pedro, Dr. Ramirez, I really, um, I'm really um, honored to be on your podcast. Uh, it's an amazing podcast. I, I like listening to it uh, day and night. I uh, <laughs> annoy my family already. So I'm really, um, it's a great honor for me. Uh, to be on your podcast and to be able to contribute to your podcast in a little bit uh, to this theme that yeah. I um, I like so much. Well, thank you so much, uh, and 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 definitely call me Pedro, as I, I will call you Ali. Um, and uh, obviously, a very heated debate uh, often, and uh, it, it's a it's a topic often uh, discussed. Uh, I, I think that this uh, podcast is highly anticipated. Many colleagues around the world are, are, are very interested in hearing your thoughts, particularly, I think, our colleagues in G1 Oncology in Brazil. Uh, so uh, let's, uh, let's get started. So we, we are obviously going to discuss uh, HIPEC, but I wanted to look at uh, three different scenarios, and um, we will look to hear your thoughts on uh, primary treatment, um, interval cell reduction, and recurrent disease. And... First, I wanted to talk about, you know, sort of like HIPEC in general. HIPEC is, is currently the standard in, in mesothelioma, in uh, primary peritoneal carcinoma, mucinous carcinomas of the appendix, uh, and yet many propose uh, for it to be routinely used for ovarian cancer in many settings around the world. Um, I think the first study uh, that looked at the use of HIPEC for peritoneal carcinomatosis in ovarian cancer was back in 1994. So obviously that's 26 years since it started. And, uh, and we're still not convinced, uh, many are still not convinced that this is the, the right approach in ovarian cancer. And it's still not part of, uh, of routine practice nor recommended in many of the guidelines. So I wanted to first ask you, why not? Why is it that 26 years later, we still don't consider HIPEC our standard in ovarian cancer? Well, um, I think um, to say we are not convinced is maybe a little bit too strong. I would say some are not convinced, uh, rightfully so. There are still open questions. Others are uh, convinced and proponents. Um, it's a difficult uh, um, question to answer just in, in a few minutes, because I think uh, we have to look at the um, evidence carefully. We have to look at um, the um, trials uh, in detail, and uh, we have to look at, at the evolution of surgery uh, without HIPEC in uh, the treatment of advanced ovarian cancer. And then um, I think we can... Um, we can be a little bit more confident in saying either, you know, this is nothing or or this is something that we should go after. But to plainly say, you know, 
uh, it's it plays no role for ovarian cancer. I think it's too harsh. Um, at the same time, to say um, um, this is the home run for ovarian cancer is is also uh, not correct. So I think uh, the the truth is somewhere in the middle, and hopefully today's discussion will uh, help. Um, guide this but it's not an easy yes or no here for yeah. sure so then then let's start by uh talking about primary treatment um do do we have any uh completed prospective randomized evidence for support of hypec as part of primary surgery so as part of primary debulking surgery to my knowledge there are uh there is no um well-designed prospective randomized trial evaluating the role of HIPEC. And when we talk about HIPEC, uh, uh, this word HIPEC uh, is really like minimal invasive surgery. Mm -hmm. uh, you ha we have to be a little bit more specific when we say HIPEC. It, it just means hypothermic intraperitoneal chemotherapy. But when we talk about this, we have to be more specific uh, in saying, okay, what chemotherapeutic agents are used, what dose is used. And uh, and what setting? So um, no, uh, to my knowledge, there is no completed randomized trial in the setting of primary debulking surgery for advanced ovarian cancer evaluating the role of HIPEC, um, um, and therefore uh, we cannot offer this as a standard for patients undergoing primary debulking surgery. Yeah, and and um, I. I... I recall that there was a there was a study I think it was presented back in ASCO in 2017 from Korea. I think it was Lim, uh, one of the authors or the lead author. Um, and I understand this study remains unpublished. That may be incorrect, uh, but I understand it's it's not, it's not published yet. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about uh, that study and and the rates of things like anemia and renal compromise and, and the surgical times between the groups, as well as the oncologic outcomes, the progression-free survival and overall survival um, in that in that particular study. Yes. So uh, this study was by Dr. Lim, uh, published in, uh, uh, at ASCO 2017 as an abstract. Um, and it's, uh, to my knowledge, uh, as well, not published. So... Um, This trial um, randomized 184 patients with advanced stage 3 and 4 ovarian cancer uh, to uh, have surgery with, uh, without HIPEC or surgery with HIPEC with cisplatin at a dose of 75 milligrams per meter squared over 90 minutes. Um, so in this study, um, patients um, were included both uh, in the primary debulking setting and in, in the setting of uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy and uh, interval debulking surgery. And um, not surprisingly, uh, uh, this uh, study showed a slightly longer OR time uh, for patients randomized to HIPEC. Um, uh, there was an increased rate of anemia in the HIPEC arm Uh, of 67% versus 50% in the control group. But remember, these patients all have uh, cytoreductive surgery, so anemia is, um, is very common. Um, and then uh, they did report elevation of creatinine in, in the uh, HIPEC arm with cisplatin, which is very important and interesting. 15% mm -hmm. had an elevation of creatinine 
postoperatively in the HYPEC group versus four in the non-HYPEC group. And that's always a concern with cisplatin because uh, we, we really don't want uh, the patients to have additional renal toxicity as uh, they depend so much on uh, platinum-based intravenous chemotherapy. But really, it's hard to tell how much clinical significance this has because uh, in this abstract, they don't report about, um, you know, um, grading of renal toxicity. Um, was this clinically significant? Did, did this uh, require dialysis or not? So it's not quite clear. Um, and um, when when they looked at progression-free and overall survival, again, you said it, it's, uh, uh, it's not published yet because the data is not mature. Um, there was no statistical difference in progression-free and overall survival. They did say that there is a trend uh, in the subgroup of patients with uh, uh, treated with neoadjuvant chemotherapy, but, um, uh, but um, really we do have to wait for um, the um, final manuscript here in order to dissect this. Okay. And then now, uh, Ali, currently, today, ongoing trials, I understand there, um, if you can talk a little bit about the ov hypec 2 study, um, that I think is about to get going or, or already started. And if you can just tell the audience, like, what's the design of that study? How many patients are, are expected? And, and also, I, I'd love to hear about when the randomization occurs in that study, because we'll talk a little bit about that a little bit later in interval, side of reduction. Um, so the ov uh, hypec 2 study. Yes, very good points, uh, Pedro. So um, this study is a follow-up study um, uh, from the Dutch group, um, and uh, they are currently starting accrual. I think they have started accrual. It may be that the COVID crisis has put things on hold, mm -hmm. but this is essentially um, a, a study that evaluates the role of HIPEC with, with cisplatin, and it also 100 milligrams per meter squared in the setting of primary debulking surgery. So... Um, Eligible are patients with uh, stage three uh, ovarian cancer, and uh, they are randomized uh, one to one. And I'll talk to, uh, about this um, a little bit later. Mm -hmm. um, uh, to either have surgery uh, without HIPEC or surgery with uh, cisplatin over 90 minutes, um, and all patients uh, will. Uh, receive standard backbone post-operative six cycles of platinum and texane-based chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. And in both arms, um, uh, maintenance treatment, uh, including bevacizumab or PARP inhibition, is allowed. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, I think they, um, the group uh, has learned from some of the weaknesses from their uh, previous trial, and we'll talk about this um, also uh, very soon. And they are... Um, randomizing intraoperatively, and this is really important, they're randomizing after uh, site reduction to either complete or near complete uh, residual disease of a few millimeters. Only those patients are allowed to be randomized. And uh, what's important is that they stratify by completeness of surgery and they stratify by center. Um, uh, so, um, this is a trial that uh, is opening now in Europe and some international centers, um, including ourselves, um, will uh, participate here. And this is, uh, to my knowledge, the first uh, HIPEC 
trial in the primary debulking setting um, that is randomized. And the only intervention that's different between those groups is um, 90 minutes of cisplatin in the OR. I see. And, and Ola, you mentioned that bevacizumab was an option and, and that this will be at the discretion of the investigators, I presume. So obviously, you know, going to two recent studies that were discussed at ASCO, the GOG-213 and the desktop-3, um, one heavy, heavy uh, influence of bevacizumab, the other not so much. Uh, and then this came into the discussion as to whether the bevacizumab made a difference uh, in, in, the, uh, in the results of those studies. So what do you think that's going to do to impact the outcomes in this study? Well, intertrial comparison is always a little bit dif difficult, right? But uh, for GOG-213 and desktop-3, you're right, uh, second-line treatment uh, was different in that in GOG-213, uh, over 80% received um, BEV uh, in the desktop trial, 23%. And then in the desktop trial, 4% received PARP inhibition. This was not reported in GOG-213. Both trials did not report uh, rate of uh, BRC and mutation status. Uh, but when you look at the outcomes, I don't think they're much different. Um, in the surgery arm, they're almost completely identical um, survivals uh, uh, and progression-free survivals. What's different in this arm is really the, uh, uh, between those studies is the overall survival, especially in the non-surgical arm of GOG-213. And um, I, I don't know if we can just blame it on the bevacizumab here. Um, you know, other things may play a role. How many patients had surgery after they progressed, uh, like I said, BRCA status is very important. So I, I think uh, the uh, HIPEC trial, uh, by allowing institutional standard treatment options for patients after, uh, after surgery, is doing exactly what, um, what's supposed to be done is uh, for all surgical clinical trials for advanced stage ovarian cancer. And the randomization will take care of uh, in uh, in imbalances, uh, you know, this is done for the neoadjuvant chemotherapy trial versus primary debugging trial uh, in, in Europe, mm -hmm. the International Trust study, uh, in this study, which is also uh, a surgical trial, post-operative mm -hmm. treatment is um, is uh, according to institutional guidelines. The important thing here is that um, as long as you uh, the institutions give and offer the same treatment options in both arms, and there's no difference between both arms, I don't think that uh, this will be problematic for uh, the um, of HIPEC 2 trial because it's a randomized uh, uh, study. Okay. So, Ali, before we leave the topic of uh, upfront treatment, uh, you mentioned that there were no completed randomized trials. Uh, one is getting on the way. Uh, one uh, is, is not published um, I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here. Um, ESMO, ESGO guidelines state, and I quote, HIPEC is not standard of care as first-line treatment. Do you think those guidelines should be changed or should they remain as they are based on the literature that we have thus far? So um, I think that um, for, if you uh, if you say first-line treatment is primary debulking setting. I agree with that statement. We have no 
randomized trials to support HIPEC um, um, in the setting of primary debulking setting. Uh, in, in the setting of interval debulking surgery, I, I don't agree with uh, ESCO, ESCO guidelines. And um, I think we have some evidence to suggest that there's a benefit and it's safe. And uh, we'll talk about this later. Mm-hmm. I think it's always a little bit careful. Uh, you know, it's always difficult with guidelines and um and with uh, societies, uh, it differs from country to country. The reasons why some countries or some societies are um, are interpreting uh, data carefully in terms of HIPEC uh, are coming from a lots uh, lots of uh, sides here. It's also um, a political discussion. Some uh, some societies fear that. Um, HIPEC is going going to be um, performed by uh, surgical oncologists rather than gynecologic oncologists, and um, it, it's becoming a, more a um, political uh, opinion making, and uh, I don't I don't like that so much. But I agree that it's not st- a state of the art and not a standard for the primary debulking setting. I um, I don't agree with interval debulking setting because I think we have some evidence. Uh, it supports the use of high tech with cisplatin at a dose of 100 milligram per meter squared. Okay, so before we get into the uh, interval debulking conversation, any role of high tech for consolidation? Is there anything uh, in that area? Um, really, nothing prospective evaluated. There is retrospective studies, and um, I, I don't think we can talk about. Um, the use of HIPEC cons- consolidation treatments after uh, after first or second line treatment. Um, there's been some trials in the, in the colorectal uh, world that um, have evaluated this prospectively and also have not shown uh, a real benefit. So I'd be careful in offering this as a consolidation. Okay. So now let's get into the the point of uh, interval cytoreductive uh, surgery. As you mentioned, a recent study by Van Driel and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, showed that HIPEC was associated with uh, improvement in progression-free survival and, uh, and overall survival. And, you know, certainly a lot of people are proposing it as uh, perhaps a new standard. Um, how, you know, not, not many sites have integrated it, and NCCN guidelines, I believe, now suggest that it can be offered. Um, some have proposed that there were many issues with that study. Uh, one of the biggest is the randomization uh, before surgery and therefore potentially proposing that there was a greater effort in the HIPEC group to, to perform an adequate side of reduction, uh, more stomas in the HIPEC group, no stratification for BRCA status, and in centers with a higher surgical volume that HIPEC had uh, minimal impact. So w- what are your thoughts uh, to these arguments? Yeah, so um, this trial was the first um, trial um, from the Dutch group uh, that enrolled 245 patients, uh, about 100 20 in each arm um, who had neoadjuvant chemotherapy and then went on to have interval debulking surgery with or without high-tech with, with cisplatin at a dose of 100 milligrams per meter squared. And um, yeah, I mean, um, this trial has shown um, an, a significant improvement in progression-free survival uh, uh, and overall survival. And 
has made it into the NCCN guidelines just because of that. Like any surgical trial, and uh, Pedro, I'm sure you've heard uh, a lot about this as well. Every, every <laughs> surgical trial has um, has weaknesses, and you can tweak things out. And it's important to t- talk about this. And I'm uh, I'm also um, very interested in in this, and we can learn from this. I think one major um, concern uh, with this trial is uh, the timing of randomization and um, many of the patients uh, were randomized uh, at the beginning of the procedure or the day of the surgery so you, the surgeons already knew uh, what uh, who was randomized to interval debulking plus hyper versus no and that can introduce a, a surgical bias and we'll talk about this a little bit later because we ourselves at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center have learned uh, that as well it can go with, it can go in both directions the surgical bias and we'll talk about this but this is a problem some of the the patients were randomized the day before even and um, and uh, this has been a major critique um, however you know when you look at the um, cytoreductive outcomes um, and uh, in both arms you can see that complete gross uh, cytoreduction was achieved in 67% in patients who had surgery without HIPEC and in 69% uh, in, in surgery with HIPEC. So there was really no difference in, in, in the rate of complete cytoreduction. reduction. So I don't know how much this um, uh, argument um, is really um, valid to say um, patients randomized to HIPEC were, had more more aggressive surgery or, or, or better surgery. We have a, a very good indicator that's residual disease and it's absolutely not different between both arms. So I'm not quite sure. No stratification for BRCA status, sure, um, would be great to have that. But, you know, GOG 213 doesn't have it. Desktop 3 doesn't have it. So it's not their fault uh, when they initiated this. And, and because it's randomized, we have to assume uh, that uh, this likely is not the, the reason why there is a difference. Um, they did stratify in uh, by centers enrolled. So I think that's a very important uh, point here and, and makes this study stronger. So if you assume that some centers are surgically much better and you don't stratify for this, uh, then uh, uh, one critique point could be that, oh, well, um, you have not stratified the center and, and, and the, the patients who did better was not because of the high tech, but because of the surgical expertise. They did uh, stratify by centers. So um, that's out of the question here. To say surgical volume, um, centers with high volume did not see such a great benefit or no benefit is all hypothesis generating uh, in, a, in an already small trial looking at those uh, numbers and breaking it down, I don't think it's the right way. I, I think this is a, uh, a fairly good uh, randomized trial uh, for uh, evaluating the role of HIPIC in the interval debulking setting. Um, it, it comes with, with weaknesses, but these weaknesses are uh, no deal breakers for me and for our institution. And um, we uh, have uh, endorsed the NCCN guidelines and we are offering it to our patients at our institutions who undergo interval debulking surgery and meet um, uh, the criteria of this trial. So I think um, every surgical trial in, uh, comes with some weaknesses. They have learned from the weaknesses and the next follow-ups study 
is randomizing in the OR. I think that's a very important point, and I'm glad that they're, they're doing this. So then now, as a, as a follow-up question to that, uh, you know, I hear you say that you're offering it routinely at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Um, you're you're a, a leading figure in, in this area. Um, should there be another trial for interval SATA reduction with HIPEC? And if so, uh, how should that trial be different? Or do we already have the answer at interval SATA reduction and no further investigation is needed? I don't know. Should there be another trial of MIS versus open for radical hysterectomy? So the, the, the I, podcast is about HIPEC, Ali. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know uh, if we need another trial in the same setting. Um, I honestly think uh, the ongoing trial um, is going to look at HIPEC evaluating in the primary debugging setting. If we see a signal that it's working there as well in a, in a well-designed uh, uh, prospective study, Um It would be great if we have another follow-up study. I think uh, in the U.S. Um, we have a high-tech working group in the NRG. I hope um, something is going to come out of this. If, if we can reproduce the results, would be great. But it's really hard to get funding uh, for for a surgical study that does not include new novel medications um, and it's not pharma um, um, sponsored by um, industry. So um, I think... Uh, it would be great to have more randomized data available, but um, for now, I'm happy with what I'm having. I know I can uh, interpret the data very well, and I know what to tell my patients when, when they all uh, walk through our doors. So let's see what's going to happen in the next uh, three, four, five years with the ongoing randomized trials. Okay. So now let's turn to recurrent disease. You... Um recently completed a, a study, an important study uh, from Memorial Sloan Kettering, secondary reductive surgery with or without HIPEC in patients with uh, platinum-sensitive disease. Um, tell us about the study and, and what did you find? Yeah, so this study uh, was done in patients with first platinum-sensitive uh, recurrent ovarian cancer, just like um, desktop and uh, uh, GOG213. Um, a slight difference here that we uh, allowed patients to be on study only with uh, between six and 30 months, months of platinum-free interval, so we capped it at 30 months, um, and they had to have uh, resectable disease. Um, we enrolled um, 90, uh, we consented uh, 117 patients, and we enrolled um, 98. The reason for that is that we randomized in the OR. Uh, so uh, after cytoreductive surgery to less than secondary cytoreductive surgery to less than five millimeters of residual disease, um, then we opened up an envelope and um, and uh, randomization occurred there. Mm -hmm. uh, those patients uh, who had more than five millimeter residual disease uh, were excluded and not randomized. Um, and um, in our trial design, we. Um, randomized patients to either have secondary cytoreductive surgery alone, followed by six cycles of standard IV post-operative platinum-based combination chemotherapy. Um, and patients who were randomized to 
uh, secondary cytoreductive surgery uh, plus high tech, and we used carboplatin in our trial at the dose of 800 milligrams per meter squared. Mm -hmm. um, uh, those patients uh, only received five cycles of post-operative standard IV chemotherapy. The reason for that is that we considered this uh, the the one dose in the OR is a um, as the first cycle. Uh, one important um, difference between our trial and uh, the GOG and desktop study uh, is that we did not permit any maintenance treatments after uh, surgery um, because our primary endpoint was um, uh, a progression-free um, uh, survival uh, at 24 months. So uh, we could not allow for any other uh, variables um, uh, to interfere with our primary endpoint. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and so so what did uh what did you find ultimately? Yeah, so ultimately uh, our survive progression free survival and overall survival was not different between arms. Mm -hmm. uh, the high arm had a twelve point three months progression free survival. The no high arm fifteen point four months. Uh, the overall survival was um, sixty nine months for no high and fifty three months for high uh, was not statistically significant. Still not uh, uh, mature the data, so um, we're um, going to do a final analysis um, of progression-free and overall survival next month. But um, uh, the outcome is not going to change. The medians are not going to change, and the, uh, there's simply no difference in survival. Mm -hmm. We also looked at the recurrence pattern in the peritoneum uh, because uh, one goal was uh, maybe to see a signal uh, with decreased rate of peritoneal recurrences um, in the high pec arm, but we did not see that either. Uh, in both patient cohorts, there was a similar uh, rate of uh, peritoneal recurrences of uh, 79 and 78% respectively. So uh, there was no difference. Um, both, uh, we looked at 30-day uh, morbidity and mortality, and we had uh, zero mortality, and we had no difference in, in morbidity or length of stay. Mm -hmm. um, that was um, absolutely um, identical. Um, and the morbidity uh, in the hypec arm was, uh, in terms of nephrotoxicity or hematologic to toxicity, was, um, was not visible. Mm -hmm. We can confirm this by pharmacokinetic data. So there's uh, little, um, little of the carboplatin reaches the systemic compartment. Compartment. All the complications that we're seeing are surgical complications. And um, yeah, I think um, uh, bottom line is um, carboplatin at this dose um, is not um, uh, does not. Uh, result in better outcomes for patients and, and we're not offering this uh, in the secondary cytoreductive setting. Yeah, so so I think that's in, important to highlight. Prospective study from Memorial Sloan Kettering, no difference in oncologic outcomes. Um, you know, certainly I believe it was a 36% bowel resection rate, uh, three hours longer in the high pec arm. Um, so what does this mean moving forward in the setting of recurrent disease? Okay, so um, the bowel, So this is a very important point um, that you're bringing this up. So bowel resections uh, were 37% in the high pec arm and 65% actually in the no high pec arm. Mm -hmm. 
complete cross resection rate was um, um, 82% in the high pec arm versus 94% in the no high pec arm. This is not statistically significant, but uh, with 49 patients in each arm, uh, you can see that um, um, you know th this is a difference worth uh, discussing. So talking about surgical bias, what's possible what happened here is that um, surgeons who were um, doing the surgery uh, maybe shied away from a bowel resection to uh, achieve a, a complete gross resection in patients who were randomized to HIPEC. It's a possibility. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying this here, and I'm, I'm uh, surprised. I was surprised to see these uh, differences, but I, I think intraoperative randomization is uh, key. Mm -hmm. And um, in our trial, what we should have done is that we should have randomized a stratified by residual disease. We have not done this. Mm -hmm. We have not stratified by a complete gross resection versus um, five millimeters or less residual disease, we did let the surgeons uh, open up the envelope uh, the moment uh, they uh, achieved less than five millimeters. So it's a possibility that uh, in those patients where there are little dots on the small ball or on the, on, on, on the rectum mm -hmm. um, and were randomized to high pick, the, the surgeons would say, okay, they're getting chemotherapy, uh, afraid of toxicity or leakage, or uh, chemotherapy is going to take care of those uh, lesions. We're not going to do uh, the extra bowel resection. It's a hypothesis, uh, but it's really important to stress how important um, intraoperative randomization in a surgical trial is, and also uh, stratification uh, uh, going forward for all planned uh, procedures. Now, the three hours longer um, um, time in the OR, to be fair, this is um, because we are randomizing intraoperatively. You know, we're not uh, the, the the machine is not in the room. Um, the chemotherapy is not mixed yet. Um, so these things are all um, adding more time. We open up the envelope. We have to let pharmacy know. So this adds another 20 and a half an hour um, um, of time. So I think the high-tech procedure itself is only 90 minutes. The um, the way we do it in the closed technique is also not taking more than 20, 30 minutes to um, to bring in the info, outro ca catheters, et cetera. But the three hours really is not because of the high pick. It's because of the intraoperative randomization process here. Okay. And Ali, and then, uh, you know, those that listen to the podcast and say, well, after listening to this podcast, should I consider high pick in the platinum sensitive recurrent disease or should I not? What would be your sort of short answer to that? A short answer, no. There's no uh, randomized trial show, showing a benefit in favor of high-tech for recurrent platinum-sensitive ovarian cancer. Uh, we have used carboplatin instead of cisplatin mm -hmm. uh, at a very conservative dose of 800 milligrams per meter squared. Could have been, um, we could have used 1,000. Uh, will this make a difference? I don't think so. Okay. We only gave five cycles uh, versus six cycles. Uh, you know, there's a slight um, uh, imbalance in terms of complete cross site reduction. But I don't think, you know, even if you uh, look at all this, um, in order to to say we should use this in a recurrent setting, uh, you do have to have a, uh, a trial that really shows a significant benefit 
Um, otherwise, um, I don't think we should offer this to our patients. So um, I think other trials are needed, other drugs are needed um, uh, in the recurrent setting. For now, we're, we're not um, recommending to use this outside of clinical trials or of protocol. Okay, very good. Um, in reading for, for this podcast, uh, it was interesting. Something that is often not discussed in, is the, the learning curve for HIPEC. And I, I was reading one study quoted that in order to start seeing consistent and reduced operative times, it, it was 50 cases that you needed to do. That in order to start seeing low morbidity, uh, another study said it was 100 cases. Uh, another study uh, mentioned that to achieve proficiency, it was between 137 to 180 cases. What, what are your thoughts about this? Yeah, I don't, I don't really like those numbers. And I don't <laughs> know, it's, it's not very, um, you know, proficiency in what? In, in giving the, the chemotherapeutic agent or uh, in doing the cytoreductive surgery uh, plus the chemotherapy. Uh, this is the problem with, uh, with this theme in general because uh, this chemotherapy is given intraperitoneally at the time of cytoreductive surgery. Lots of things are happening. One is the, the, the uh, tumor volume, then this complexity of the surgery, and then, um, and then is the, the chemotherapy, the perfusion, which really, uh, in my opinion, is... Um, uh, not very technical. Uh, using the robot uh, for robotic surgery uh, is more te technical than giving the chemotherapy intravenously. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, really, I think uh, there's um, uh, closed and open techniques. And and once you've seen uh, seen it, um, uh, maybe you do uh, some three, four, five cases supervised by somebody who can put in the catheters or, or show you how, how the machine works, but uh, you don't need uh, 100 or 137 cases. You need that to learn cytoreductive surgery, yes, but not for uh, giving the chemo intraoperatively. I don't think that's um, that's an adequate number here. Mm -hmm. So I, I have two more questions for you. Um, one of them is, you know, when, when you look at successful treatments, otherwise, you know, some, what we often call home runs in medicine in the United States, um, treatments that are simple to implement, uh, widely accessible, cost-effective. I was reading a, a recent article, I believe it was by the group from the Cleveland Clinic, and, um, and they, they mentioned that in order to establish a high-pec program, you need, obviously, gynecologic oncologists, anesthesia experts, nursing, perfusionists, pharmacists, all familiar with high-pec. And in addition, you need toxic waste and spill management, like personal protective equipment, high-pec pump, of course, uh, routine use of drugs like furosemide and mannitol to assure adequate diuresis, uh, lots of pre-medications to prevent hypersensitivity, renal toxicity, nausea, vomiting. You have to pay close attention, obviously, to intraoperative hyperglycemia, lactic acidosis, hypokalemia, uh, also a pretty costly uh, treatment option for, for these patients. Um, then some might say, well, given all of that, why should I aim to pursue a high-pay program given all of the above and no guidelines in the field of gynecologic oncology proposing it as a standard treatment? Yeah, well... Pedro, let me ask you one thing. 
at, at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Are you guys giving chemotherapy in your center? Chemotherapy, yes. So I think you guys all have gynecologic oncologists. Um, PPEs are available, toxic waste, furosemide, mannitol. That's all standard for chemotherapy. That's not a not not anything different um, than standard chemotherapy. All these things are very familiar to um, uh, to um, doctors and nurses who are familiar in chemotherapy. There is nothing special about this, really. In terms of um, costs, I'm not so quite sure um, how we can um, discuss this really fairly. I mean. Uh, Look at the benefit of bevacizumab in uh, the uh, GOG 213 um, or in, in the ocean studies between three and four months. The costs of bevacizumab, just the drug, is $100,000 per year, I guess, uh, maybe now a little bit less. Uh, this does not include nursing costs, doctor's costs, uh, management of toxicities. Um, and the cost of one dose of cisplatin given at uh, cytoreductive surgery when the patient is under anesthesia, already undergoing a procedure, um, is $50, I think, for cisplatin. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, you have to um, ha have additional OR time, but this really doesn't come, cut, come close to uh, all the new medications. So um, I, I really don't think um, uh, this is a, a big investment. Um, a high-tech program is the same as a robotic program. You, you need to have some nurses who can um, set up uh, a machine. Um, everything else is chemotherapy, um, all standard of care chemotherapy management, so no additional people need to be hired. Uh, the guidelines are same for chemotherapy as uh, outside of the OR as uh, inside of the OR. And, and really, uh, at the time of surgery, when you're already taking a patient to the OR, patient is already scheduled to have a, a necessary procedure, and you're enhancing what you are already doing in the OR uh, under anesthesia, I think is very cost-effective uh, uh, rather than not cost-effective. So this is not really a good um, argument against high tech. But Ali, I would, I would follow to that. I mean, you did mention in all fairness that, you know, certainly yes, chemotherapy, or uh, this is just like a robotic program. For places like Memorial Sloan Kettering, the Mayo Clinic, Johns Hopkins, MD Anderson, not a problem. But every patient with ovarian cancer around the world needs the same treatment. And, you know, I think that it, it would be challenging for places in rural countries, in cities, in, in, in developing countries to say, well, my patients don't have access to this type of option because we don't have a high back pump we don't have a perfusionist so that that was that was the uh, the right. the point that but, i was getting at yeah and and that's right but the the high pack pump or uh, uh, you don't need a perfusionist you uh, the high pack pumps are uh, um, there's different high pack pumps and systems who are uh, much less costly 
uh, a robotic program. The same thing can can be said for minimal invasive surgery, robotics with new technologies. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think the costs of um, of additional equipment uh, is, is a uh, a big issue. All the uh, waste protocols or or uh, PPE equipment is the standard equipment that you would use um, in a chemotherapy suit uh, in a chemotherapy uh, clinic as well. So um, no, I I really don't think this is a a big investment, uh, much less investment than um, a complex minimal invasive program with uh, robotic surgery, which is a problem in 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 many. Uh, uh, countries and uh, is not paid for by the insurances. So uh, this is, I think, less. Uh, uh, people make it sound like it's so um, so much technicality and high tech, but it it really is not. Okay, so Ali, I, I wish I could continue speaking with you because obviously this is a, this is a great topic. So, but I'm going to be respectful of your time as well. Um, my last question: Where is the ray of light for Hypeg? Where does it look like we will be making a breakthrough in Hypec? It depends on how you define breakthrough. Um, I'm I'm um, in between here. I don't think um, you can say Hypec uh, has no chance in the no no place in the treatment of ovarian cancer. I think as long as we can uh, improve the outcomes in the OR, as long as patients need to go to the OR for site-reductive surgery and we can um, innovate uh, treatment in the OR and we have the opportunity to do so, uh, uh, this is a good opportunity to um, evaluate new treatments. It's a great opportunity to evaluate the efficacy and also uh, mechanisms of treatment because you have the opportunity to get tissue before and after perfusion patient is under anesthesia already, um, uh, it's it's a, a great setup for um, translational research. But at the same time, it's also not, uh, some people use uh, HIPEC as the, the home run for ovarian cancer and we can cure, cure people. No, it's not, uh, definitely not. I think it could be a, um, a, a part of the armamentarium uh, that we're using uh, for this complex disease. Um, and um, I think the the next four or five years with the other prospective trials coming out will, will show us the way here. And I'm, um, I'm open to it. We as an institution are investing uh, academically into this. We want to look into this um, uh, within clinical trials. We want to participate in clinical trials and we're going to observe what's, what's coming out. So um, I'm excited to be part of the program. I'm uh, um, also realistic. I think uh, home runs and uh, like PARP inhibitors for BRCA-positive patients uh, are equally in, in, important. Um, and I, I think it's a, um, if we can combine efforts, um, one does not exclude the other. I think we're on a good way here. Just to say it's not working and we're not investing into this, I don't think uh, we would agree with that. I think we need more more, more uh, data here to uh, find its place. Um, and I think the next four or five years are going to show us the way here. Ali, thank you so, so much. I want to first congratulate you on, uh, on, on the great work you're doing. 
on your leadership in this area in our field and uh really you should be very very proud of uh, of your contributions thank you for your time and thank you for answering uh, some of these questions that i put you on the spot for for some of them so i uh, i really feel that you have added a uh, great value to our listeners Pedro, thank you so much. Again, I'm really honored and humbled to be part of your podcast. It's a, it's an amazing program at um, at um, uh, your journal, and I'm um, I'm really looking forward to uh, listening to many more of your podcasts. And um, hopefully, we'll meet again and we can talk more uh, about HIPIC in the setting of treatment of ovarian cancer in, in the next coming years. Great. So thanks again. Thank you.